Kala Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's wide range of beautiful wood designs can be painted, stained, or unfinished to complement any decor. Put no money down, no payment, and no interest for up to 24 months. Visit PalaWI.com. Expires 9-30-2022. Certain restrictions apply. See showroom for details. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. This is actually, it's a week of of firsts in many cases for us. As everybody knows, we're broadcasting live from our new facility down at the Avenue. And, you know, it, everything actually is going very, it's, it's going very well um, as, as we make that move. And it's a pleasure to be down here. Okay, this is the other first for me. And I, I'd like to share these experiences. Um, I, I don't talk about this a lot, but about two years ago, in the category of John Lennon of the Beatles, I'm not sure he's the first one that said it, but he, he certainly said, you know, life is what happens while you're making plans. So a couple of years ago, I decided, okay, you know, I, I've always wanted to have a, a, a second place, a place in South Florida that you could go to escape winters as you got older and things like that. So we ended up pulling the trigger and purchased, you know, a place in Southwest Florida that we've had for a, for a couple of years. And my Beautiful wife, Fran, spent about a year kind of during COVID getting the thing all, all ready and stuff, and we, we quite enjoy it. So I'm now watching with bated breath as this hurricane um, you know, kind of heads into the Gulf of, of Mexico and, and heads up, and um, it's expected to make landfall right around Fort Myers. And if you've um, if you vacationed, as many people have in, in South Florida, chances are you, you flew into <clears throat> Fort Myers. Our place is south of Fort Myers. We're kind of more in the Naples area, and it looks like the the eye of the hurricane is going to miss where we are, which isn't to say that they're, I'm looking at this, it's like sustained winds of like 75 miles an hour, kind of like where we are and all, and there's somebody that's still in the neighborhood that sends pictures back and forth. But it is this kind of interesting experience because all my life I, I've seen these reports of hurricanes, and it's always been kind of an intellectual exercise. Oh, there's a hurricane that's moving towards so-and-so and things like that. And, of course, you hope for the best, and you don't want to have loss of life or anything like that. It's sort of a different experience when you, you have a place down there, and you're sitting there thinking, ah. Oh, Hope, uh, you know, hope that uh, everybody is safe and stuff. And I'm watching the Weather Channel and I'm watching like the the news from the Florida area on the Internet and things like that. And you're looking going, huh, I, I know where that I know where that bridge is or boy, I, I, I know where that street is and stuff like that. So hopefully everybody, um, everybody who is down there is in a position where that they can be safe and things like that. So watching this very, very closely. All right, we have a lot of ground to cover on today's program, some fun stuff, some lighter stuff, and some more serious stuff as well. Let, let's get started. We've talked on this program on a number of occasions about th- this push that the government is making towards a- electric vehicles. And if you're a regular listener, you know that, I, I, see, I'm a free market guy, and, and I believe that there will be a time when just because there becomes a shortage of, for example, you know, oil, it, that, that the cost of, of having to buy a, a gallon of gasoline and maintain a car, the cost will be so great that it will make sense for people to buy electric vehicles. So I, I've always been <clears throat> of that belief. The problem with this is we are not at that point right now. The other problem we have is that the electric grid is just not geared 
to satisfy the need for electric vehicles. You know, we've talked about this a lot in, in uh, California, where they are, they've, they've outlawed essentially new sales of the internal combustion engine you know, 12 years from now, and we're not ready to do that. The electric grid is not capable of, of dealing with this, but yet we're trying to force people or push people or incentivize people to move into these electric type of vehicles. And, and you're starting to see more of that, Last August, you know, there was a law which extended an existing $7,500 tax credit um, to, for, to people who, who buy electric vehicles. So, I mean, even the government is recognizing that the cost of electric vehicles and these things, if, if there weren't for, if it were not for these tax breaks that were around, very few people, not nobody, but very few people would buy them. But when you artificially take other people's money, taxpayer dollars, and give people this type of incentive, you encourage people to, to maybe do this. Now, I, I've said this before. I have a couple friends who own electric vehicles. As a general rule, the electric vehicles are second or third cars. And I don't want to go so far as to say kind of toys, but in some respects, that, that's, that's what they use them for. I mean, it, it's okay, we're, this is the, our third car. We're going to spin around town for this. Um, we, we would never consider taking it on a longer trip like that, but it's a fun little thing to, to drive around, which, which I appreciate. I don't know anybody who owns an electric vehicle who uses it as their daily regular driver if they end up having to drive any sort of length of, of time. Like I say, if if your entire world is centered around like a 15 or 20 mile radius, th- those are the people that I know and that's what they use their electric vehicles for. I have argued that there's all sorts of problems that even with that $7,500 tax incentive, we're not there with the, the – the, they just simply don't run – on a charge, on a battery, you, you can't get the distance that you, you need to make it practical. It takes too long to recharge these different things. And again, I, I think right now we're not close to this, but the government wants people to be there. So I want to open up the phone lines. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here is my question. What would it take to get you to purchase an electric vehicle, let's say in the next six months to to a year. I mean, what what is going to have to happen? Is it the $7,500 tax break? Is it the fact that they're now talking about in the state of Wisconsin, they're going to put more of these uh, like charging stations around various interstates or state highways? What What is it going to take? What would it take to get you to buy an electric vehicle. And I don't want to hear from people who already own electric vehicles. I mean, you, you've made that decision. Is it greater government subsidies? Gee, if the government would give me $20,000, I'd be inclined to do it. Is it, I don't know, um, if the cost were to come down $20,000, I'd be inclined to do it. If it's, gee, once they get the point, if, if you can get 500 miles on a battery charge and I can recharge the battery in 10 minutes, like I can fill up my gas tank in 10 minutes, what is it going to take? What will it take for you to purchase an electric vehicle? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. There's a story in the Wall Street Journal today about how 
the, the, the government tax credits to buy an electric vehicle have increased. The, the $7,500 is going to be continued for a while. There's a story in the journal Sentinel talking about how the Department of the U.S. Department of Transportation has okayed Wisconsin's plan to put more, quote-unquote, high-speed electric chargers. Now, that's kind of an oxymoron. But, but is this going to move the needle? My question is a sincere one. For people who do not own electric vehicles, what, what, what would it take to get you into an electric vehicle? Jeff, for me, it's 1,000 miles minimum on a charge, cheaper purchasing cost, and a lifetime warranty on the uh, batteries. You know, that's an interesting point, and a couple people are making that. I mean, right now, that, that's the whole issue with these replacement battery things. Remember, there was a story about the, the kid, the high school kid who buys a used Ford Fusion, like 1994, 1990, no, 2004, 2005, or whatever, and it's, um, he buys it, and what happens is the, the battery dies, and then they spend 11000 bucks for the car. Then he goes to the dealer, and they say the battery's going to be $14,000. $14,000, and then they say, well, never mind. Ford doesn't make these batteries anymore, so you can't. So you've got an $11,000 paperweight. All right, so what's it going to take? Let's start with Mike. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Mike. Mike. Okay. 855-616-1620. Jeff, Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Can you hear me okay? I can, yes, sir. Okay, what's it going to take to get you into an EV? Um, two things. Uh, well, it's infrastructure. Uh, one is charging stations, and two, uh, I want to outfit my home with uh, solar and uh, battery packs so I can basically uh, live for free. But I <laughs> want to comment on your comment. Um, you know, uh, I've listened to you a couple of times. And you tend to be a hand-wringer uh, regarding these issues. This is progress. I, I'm, I'm going to guess that you probably would have... Uh, what's it going to take? My question is, look, I, I don't, look, what's it going to take to get you into one? That's what the question was. It's, it's, it's not progress right. if it's not practical. Uh, it sure it is. And that's what they said about the automobile when it first came okay, out. Okay, so you what's know, it going to take? You don't own one now. What's it going to take for you to, to buy one? You, you, so you've already made the decision. You're, talk, you're telling me it's progress, but you don't have one, right? No. I said infrastructure, high-speed charging, and outfitting my home for solar. But these things take time, and we got to work through the issues so we can plan. Like gas tax, you're not going to pay for uh, road uh, gasoline, and therefore gas tax is going to be affected, right? So, so you're going to wait till it's solar. So it's solar. That's all right. So your answer is it's it's high speed charging stations along the road, and went once once in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, we can depend on solar energy. That's what's going to get you into the car. Personally, solar. My house, solar. Okay. Well, uh, th- thanks for the call. I, my my guess is if that's the case. It's going to be an awfully long time before you buy an electric vehicle. I guess that that is the point. You can tell me, well, it's progress. Well, okay, and that's why I keep saying there will be a point in time where the cost, for example, of gasoline gets so great that it makes sense for these other options. But if, if you're talking about solar in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in the middle of January to heat your house and to um, heat your house, to turn on the lights, to turn on all the computers, and also to power your car, 
Uh, good luck with that, because it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. 855-616-1620. That's the um, Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, you're not a hand wringer. You're the voice of reason. Well, I, I mean, it's an individual choice. But I again, I think it's interesting when you end up getting sort of lectured by people. Well, this is progress. Do you have one? No. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, what's it going to take for you to end up getting one? And I guess what's but my concern is you have the government that is trying to force people into this and is using taxpayer money to force people to make this choice when if you simply depended on the free market, it would never happen. Jeff, my opinion is it's range, and where do all the used batteries go? And I think that's in. Jeff, I will never own an electric vehicle. The government will have to mandate it. Well, I, I mean— if you live in California, they're getting that. Jeff, the only way I would get something like that is if it were for free. Well, all you guys are, you're, don't you understand that you're, you know, fighting this. Jeff, what amper service do you need for charging at home? Yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. We were talking about that variation of that the other day. The way it works is, um, you, generally speaking, all right, assuming you have the sufficient electrical service, it costs somewhere in the neighborhood of $3,000 to put an overnight charger into your house. Assuming the electrical service can, can handle it, you might need to, to reconfigure things like that. But that's the overnight charging system. And, of course, what they're concerned about is once electric vehicles come into place, if we haven't upgraded the – if you haven't upgraded the power grid – well, okay, you know, how, how, how are you going to handle this if all of a sudden you've got thousands and thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people who are now starting to actually try to access the power grid during the day and at night? Jeff, I'm totally with you on this one. That's why I've got a hybrid. See, that's the interesting thing as well to me. What you have is we, we've moved away from, from the hybrids which are, of course, you know, the, they run on battery until the battery's worn down. Then you've got the gasoline-powered engine that, that kicks in. And by the way, helps to recharge the, the batteries. So that, that's the operation. But it's interesting. We're moving away from hybrids. Why are we doing that? Even though they probably make the most sense, we're moving away from that because, again, you have people in positions of power who don't like gasoline to begin with. And the fact that the hybrids— might make a lot more sense. They're still not popular because, again, you've still, we're going to have to use gasoline. So the idea is we want to force people out of their cars. And again, I just don't think it's ready to happen. But my question is, what's going to have to happen for you to want to buy it? Nancy, Nancy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. They have to give me a free Subaru Impreza just like I have right now, before I would do it. There, there, there's got to be other people besides me who can't afford a $60,000 car. Mm-hmm. My car's paid for. The only way I'm going to do it is they're going to take my Subaru and replace it with an all-wheel drive Subaru before I'm doing it. Okay, well, let's say, well, let's say what happens, Nancy, is... You're, you know, you, you, you drive the car that you have now, you, you drive it into, into the ground, whenever that might be, three years from now, That's four years from I'm now. That's what I'm doing. Okay. That, it's six, seven years old. Okay. Yep. So you drive it into the ground. So you're at the point where you got to go out and you've got to purchase something new because you've, you've got as much time as you could out of that one. Is there anything that could be done right now that you can anticipate that would encourage you to buy an electric vehicle as opposed to <laughs> replacing the Subaru? It, it would have to be free. 
Yeah. Okay. No. It would have to be free. My car's paid for. I'm. I'm not buying another car unless somebody totals it and the insurance company helps me. Got it. But my car's paid for. Okay. And good. I love it. Good enough. Thanks. Th- thanks for call. Well, you're, I mean, you are going to have to replace it at, at some point in time. I, I guess it just. I read all this stuff, and I understand the people who love electric vehicles love electric vehicles. I understand that at some point in time in the future, we will all probably be driving those. My concern is, no matter how much the government throws at this right now and tries to incentivize people to do it, we're just so far away from this being a practical solution for the vast majority of people that it, it's not funny. Let's talk to Charlie. Charlie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, thanks for calling. Sure. Um, I Bob, think I'm sorry. Everybody is, okay. Uh, it's going too fast and too costly. For example, when I was in Japan, Tokyo, they were running on nat- uh, a natural gas. No problem. They had to do it because it can, uh, the the uh, um, uh, the smoke in it uh, in the in the environment there, and uh, there was no problem. Okay. Now I remember, maybe you do, at Summerfest about ten, fifteen years ago, Wisconsin Electric slash Gas. Um, um, mm-hmm. uh, we interviewed him. That they actually had four or five different cars there that they had converted to natural gas. So I don't know what happened to all these wonderful uh, people who were designing the natural gas, but again, they have uh, RVs that are switching uh, when their people are uh, driving. Uh, They can switch it from natural gas, well, from gasoline to natural gas. But th- thanks for call, Bob. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but you, you don't understand. Natural gas is now evil. I, I mean, the, and this is, if you think your utility bills are high now or they're going to be high this winter with natural gas, which is relatively clean and relatively cheap, you know, what's, what's going on, for example, in California, it, there you're, you are not in the next couple of years going to be allowed to replace your natural gas furnace if something goes wrong with it. You are not going to be able to build new construction with natural gas furnaces. No, this is all part of the war against fossil fuels that's being launched. And, and, and so, you know, we're moving away from natural gas. And again, can you imagine what would happen here in, for example, the Midwest, where it gets cold in the winter? Could you imagine what would happen if all of a sudden everybody was told you're, you're not going to be allowed to put gas-fired furnaces in there anymore, and you're going to have to use electric heat? You, you want to talk about your, your utility bills going up. Don't complain about your utilities bills going up 25 or 30 bucks, you will be looking, in my opinion, at a couple hundred dollars. But again, I don't even know where where the electricity is going to come from. We At some point in time, maybe we're going to get there, but we're just not close. Jeff, for me to get an electric car as a second car, first of all, the city would have to change its electrical code to allow a charger. I have no garage and must park at least 50 feet from any point of my house. That's a really interesting question. You know, I mean, if you've got a garage, okay, you, you could spend a few thousand dollars and you, you could put one of those charging things in there, assuming you could work out the electricity. What happens if you don't have a garage? What happens if you park on the street? How are you going to charge the thing overnight? Secondly, battery issues, the replacement cost replacement availability for at least 20 years, and three, range and fast charge. Well, that that's all those are, are valid sort of points. I mean, as, as I've 
talked about before. Right now, it's just flat out not practical to take the car on long-range trips. And whenever I say that, somebody says, oh, don't you understand? I have a friend who drives a Tesla, and they were able to you know, get from Milwaukee to Minnesota, Minneapolis, and they were able to do that on one charge. Well, good, good for them. But the problem is what happens if they're doing it in December and you know, you're running the heater and you hit some bad weather. And then you know, if you need to stop along the way and charge it, you don't have it charging overnight, are you really going to sit there and wait for four hours? I guess my point is, the government is trying to push us into these things when the free market is not ready for it. But of course, unless you, if you don't think that that's the way to go, you apparently like don't love the planet and stuff. Well, no, I just like to be able to heat my house and I like to be able to drive a few hundred miles on a tank of gas and then be able to refill that tank of that car in about five minutes and then get back out on the road again. Okay, Mike, this is a bad sign. I, I'm watching I'm watching film clips from the hurricane that, that's yeah. coming ashore right now. And Lee, Lee County, which is the county just to the south of Fort Myers, they're, they're, I, I don't know where it is exactly, but the sheriff's department had like a has a, a big like mobile command trailer. I, I'm watching it be swept. <laughs> it's like floating down whatever the, the street is. And it's like a, huh. mo- a mobile command center in every a, sense of the word. Right. Huh? Mo- right e- e- exactly. But it, it doesn't have a rudder on it. <laughs> it's just the, the amount of rain that's getting just dumped. is just absolutely amazing. Do you know how gamblers like are pay attention to every sports station at the same time to just get a read on every single game and catch all the, is that you right now watching this thing? Well, just during the breaks and stuff, but I mean, it, it's, it, it's sort of like, yeah, but there's nothing you can do. It's, it's one of those. It, you're right. In, in many respects, it is exactly like the gamblers watching the games. You put down the bet, you know, and you, you think the Packers are going to win by seven and they're losing by 20. And you're just you're hoping against hope that something turns around. Exactly. There's nothing you can do. So I, that's that's kind of informing my attitude about this hurricane. Well, I wish you the best of luck as you track this from uh, from the from, avenue. From, well, yes. And, and actually, it's it's much better. Uh, for, I mean, what you really have to feel bad for is the people who are just still down there who are kind of like riding this out and stuff. That's the, um, cause it, it is, it is the real deal. Hey, one final thought about the electric vehicles. This is my favorite text that came in. Jeff, funny that you're talking about the electric vehicles. I just saw a tow truck drop off a Tesla to a charge station at the Woodman's in Menominee Falls. Yeah, that, that's it. You, okay. At least if you run out of gas, right, we, we know, you know what what happens you you know you go you get the gas tank you put the gas in your car starts up again if you run out of if your battery dies somewhere it's called the tow truck hook it up and then try to find some uh try to find some gas station that'll fit fit it if, if look I, I if you want to buy an electric vehicle go go ahead and buy an electric vehicle i'm just saying i think that even with the 700 $7, incentives that the government continues to offer it's not going to substantially move the needle because there's all sorts of other issues that have to be resolved first when we come back if you're still there what's the matter with you I will explain, and we're not talking about the hurricane. I will explain, and we will discuss. Okay, you want some good news? Let's see. Uh, In contrast to a number of days, Dow Jones Industrials making a rebound today, up 465 points as we speak. The NASDAQ um, up about 151, which is a 1.4% drop increase. So after days and days of relentless losing, at least at this at this, at least at this juncture, what you're seeing is uh, numbers are up, which is good for at least for the particular day. 
Okay. Now, I, I said in, in the lead into this that if you're still there, what are you doing there? And I, I'm not referring to the people that are in the, the path of, you know, Hurricane Andrew, Hurricane um, Ian, even though my, my point would be if I was down there and it's not like people haven't gotten enough notice, I, I think, you know, it, it, there's a time to stay and hunker down and have your hurricane party, and there's a time to kind of move out of the area. And, and I think that time was a long time ago, but some people make the decision to ride it out. Okay, that's fine. I'm not talking about them when I say, if you're still there, what are you doing there? I'm talking about Russia. Here's the, the, the story that I came across yesterday. Here's the headline. Americans should flee Russia immediately, could be conscripted. In other words, drafted and made to fight in Ukraine, U.S. Embassy urges. State Department warns Americans could be forced to fight in Ukraine if they do not immediately leave Russia. Let me read a portion of this story. The U.S. Embassy in Moscow has urged all Americans in Russia to flee the nation following President Vladimir Putin's partial mobilization decree last week. Russia may refuse to acknowledge dual nationals' U.S. citizenship, deny their access to U.S. consular assistance, prevent their departure from Russia, and conscript dual nationals for military service. So um, the embassy warned that the ability to leave Russia has already become increasingly difficult with limited commercial flights and crowded border checkpoints. Those residing or traveling in Russia should depart Russia immediately while limited commercial travel options remain. Okay, and then it goes on to to talk about how, you know, Putin says he wants 300,000 conscripts. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, we, we all know... That one of the, the, the heated, still simmering controversies involves uh, Brittany Griner, who is the WNBA player, who last, what was it, last February, immediately before the invasion of Ukraine, made the decision that she was going to fly into Moscow because she was going to play for a, a, a team, a club team in, in Russia. And we all know how that worked out. She apparently, as she flew into Russia, she was in possession of a small, underlined small quantity of hashish oil. Um, she says that she didn't know it was in her luggage, that she didn't intend to put it in there. But it doesn't matter. She, this isn't the movie Midnight Express. It's not like she's a large-scale uh, smuggler. But we're at a time where you know, political relations are at a real, real low point with Russia. She's a high-profile person, and she's entering Russia, and she's got contraband with her. Now, again, in a sane world, what would have happened with Brittany Griner is she would have been fined $10,000 or $20,000 or whatever, and she would have been immediately deported. We don't live in a, in a sane world, though, and she's being held right now as a political prisoner. At least that's my opinion. She was sentenced to, what, like nine or ten years in prison, and the Biden administration is working to try to get her and a couple other Americans in similar situations back but you know they've already offered a, an, an arms dealer who's serving a 25-year prison sentence, and that doesn't appear to be enough for the Russians. So th- this is what happens when you make these decisions to go to a, a country like Russia, and, it, and it's it's bad. And I really do. I, I think on the one hand, with Brittany Griner, I, I I don't believe that you can negotiate with rogue nations, and I, I don't think you can you know. I trade, you know, prisoners in this sort of situation. I don't think you can take a convicted arms dealer and, and make that trade, but it's it's a difficult situation, and I appreciate it, which is why people need to go out of their way not to put themselves in that situation. So our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 
I, I guess I, I have two thoughts with this. First, I can't believe that anybody in their right mind, dual citizenship or not, would continue to be in Russia if you had an alternative. I guess that's number one. Number two, if anybody who has dual citizenship decides to remain in Russia at this point in time and they end up getting drafted, I, 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 don't, I don't know who they turn to. At some point in time, I think you have to say, look, you got to take responsibility. You make that decision to stay, and there are bad things that can happen to you, including you might find yourself in the Russian winter fighting in, in Ukraine. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, at this point in time, if there are U.S. citizens, dual nationals or whatever, that are still remaining in Russia— is there sympathy for them if stuff if they get drafted or if bad stuff happens and if they can't get out? Or just like when they give you those hurricane warnings that say, hey, it's time to leave, and if you don't leave, well, all right, the emergency responders aren't going to be able to come and rescue you, at least for a period of time. Isn't this the same thing? Any sympathy at all for people who decide they want to stay given what's going on. And I got to tell you, if I if I was a dual citizen after that war in Ukraine started, I would have been, unless I was 100% behind the Russian regime, I would have been on the first car, bus, train, plane, ox cart out of that country. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If people decide to stay, American citizens decide to stay, dual citizenship or not, are, are they accepting the responsibility for whatever happens to them? And my answer would be yes. 855-616-1620. We discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The, the State Department is issuing warnings to Amer- any Americans who might be remaining in Russia saying, get out. And it's particularly directed to any Americans that might have dual citizenship, um, you know, because they're saying, look, there is a very, very real chance that you could end up getting conscripted. You could end up getting drafted. You could end up, you know, with that rifle in your hands in the middle of a Russian winter fighting in Ukraine because Putin says he's going to draft 300,000 people and they've got to come from somewhere. I I think that's good advice. I guess my larger point is, given what's been going on over the course of the last, what, seven, eight, nine months, you know, anybody that's any American that's still left in Russia needs to, at least in my opinion, have have their head examined because it seems to me nothing good is, is going to come of this. I can see even if it's not conscription, I can easily see a situation where Putin says, all right, the, the West is evil. They're trying to destroy us. We're going to round up all Americans and we're going to put them in some sort of holding sort of facility. We're going to quarantine them. Jeff, I have zero sympathy for anyone who wasn't smart enough to leave Russia. Those are the same people that would want our country to rescue them at huge expense. Totally done with sympathy for people who create their own problems. Um, Jeff, um, yeah, now here's the, the flip side of this. Jeff, you got to understand a lot of Americans in Russia are there because their employers do business in Russia. It's not about citizenship or allegiance. It's about doing their job. My employer is one of many companies that currently has Americans working in Russia. And I guess my response would be to those companies, what are you thinking I mean, seriously, what what are you thinking at this point in, in time, given where we are and given the instability of Vladimir Putin? 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Gianni in Montello. Gianni, good afternoon. 
Good afternoon, Jeff. Hey, listen, um, I, I was in, in St. Petersburg for um, in the early 90s and mid-90s, and uh, Subchak was the mayor and Putin was the deputy mayor. At the time, uh, we didn't know that much about Putin. He was um, you know, obviously a, a, probably a corrupt, part of a corrupt administration, but there were no issues when we were there in, in the 90s. Um, things have changed considerably. Americans were loved back then, but things have changed considerably. And you look at the Brittany Griner story, I would say, I, I, I'm not, I've been there multiple times, I would not go back to Russia today, and I would suggest that nobody go there as a tourist. Now, whether you're working for a company or, or, or not, that's a, a different thing. But yeah, it, it does beg the question, why are Western assets uh, even investing in Russia? So it's, I think it's a very dangerous place, and I will probably not see the Russian border again in my lifetime. I'll, I'll go to Scandinavia, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark. So, yeah, I think, no, thank, thanks for calling. I mean, I guess that's sort of it. And and I, I have friends who have visited Russia on cultural exchange programs and, and things of the like. It's never, it's actually never been close to the top of my list when we start talking about places that you want to travel to. But but this is a this is a different time. You have an unstable dictator who is getting more and more unstable by the day as his efforts at, at world conquest start to, to fail. And, I mean, if you're an American there, and I, I appreciate if your company's doing business there, well, I, I think that's one of the times where you call up the boss and say, boss, what what are you going to do if all of a sudden, you know, we start having that roundup of, of Americans and they're you know going to put us in concentration camps or internment camps or, or whatever? You know, what, what are you going to do to get us out? And if the boss says, well, I don't think there's any likelihood that that's going to happen, well, I think maybe that's the point in time where you want to start putting your resume out out there. Welcome back. Hey, an update on something we were talking about yesterday, and we've discussed before that the Joe Biden giveaway will forgive $10,000 in student loans for people who make up to a quarter million dollars a year. Very, very controversial. And number of people, whenever we discuss this, say, hey, is this legal? And my answer has always been, I don't think so, but you need to have a lawsuit filed and you need to have somebody with what they call standing. That is the ability to legally, an interest in the matter, so they can legally file a claim. Well, okay, it's a tough sort of issue, but um, yesterday there was a federal lawsuit filed to block the president's loan write-off. And it's by an Indiana student loan borrower who makes the argument that he's harmed by the loan cancellation and that it is illegal. Um, So it's at least this is now starting to get in the courts and it is starting to be litigated. How it ultimately turns out, I, I don't know. To me, it seems to me that we don't have kings. We have presidents and we have a three party. We have the executive, the legislative and the judicial branch. And it seems to me that a president just shouldn't be able to wave his magic wand and make four hundred and twenty billion dollars in debt end up going away. That's going to have to be paid for by other taxpayers. But the courts will ultimately decide that when we come back. It is a huge controversy in the city of Milwaukee, and it potentially affects any of us who go to live music shows. We'll discuss. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Again, so very glad to have you with us. All right, as as our presence 
downtown at the Avenue, like the big voice guy says, is as indicated, there is at least an effort, and particularly in downtown Milwaukee, to try to create a, a rebirth. And as somebody who remembers this facility that I'm in, back when it was the Grand Avenue, when it first opened up in the sometime in the late 80s or whenever that was, and, and you see everything that's happened now, you, you see it's kind of, it's a renaissance, it's a rebirth. I'm not saying that there's not issues, but there there is an effort to revitalize downtown. You're seeing that with some of the new uh, businesses that are relocating downtown, not that far from us, you've got Wright Height, which moved from Brown Deer, got this super new facility, but there, there's others as well. And one of the things that they're trying to do in renovating and bringing back and re-energizing downtown is they're trying to create venues that attract people. Now, there's issues. I talk on this program about crime all the time, and, and that's always going to be something that, that's there. But first of all, if you're going to bring people down, you have to have attractions that people want to go to. And that's why there's been a development in a story that we've talked about once or twice. And it's it's just, candidly, it's one of these arguments that I just, I don't think that there is merit on one side of the issue. You have Pfizer Forum in the Deer District. And Pfizer Forum is, of course, home to lots of large concerts. It's where the Bucks play. It's um, it is an attraction. You have the Deer District, which has grown up around Pfizer Forum, right? And it brings people into this area. Remember when the Bucks were in the playoffs? They'd have those big. They put up the big TV sets, and people would flock down there. You have bars and restaurants that are opening up in that immediate area. Why? Because it is an attraction. People come to Fiserv, and then as a result of that, there is a spillover. They patronize other restaurants in the area. Well, all right, we all remember that before there was Fiserv Forum, there was the Bradley Center, which was on land immediately to the uh, south of, of where Fiserv Forum is. The Bradley Center has been leveled. The Bradley Center, currently, that space currently sits vacant. And so what's happening now is... FPC Live, which is essentially the big concert promoter in the country, what they want to do is they want to build a concert venue that will be on the space immediately to the south of Pfizer Forum. And this is something that's being done with the blessing of of the Bucks owners. The idea is it's going to be a venue that can you, you can adjust the size. But essentially, you can put up to 4,000 people in in this venue. And for a a lot of the concerts, it might be like people will stand up. They they can also, I think, from my understanding, is they can partition it off so it could be smaller as well. But it is going to be a concert venue, which is going to be, again, in the shadow of Fiserv. But it will be another inducement for people to want to come down and go to that area. Now, I argue and continue to believe that this is an absolute and total no-brainer. I mean, it's the idea is, you know, here you have another concert venue. You've got aggressive promoters, admittedly, who have access to all sorts of different acts. And I think it's, it's a bonus for the area. Well, it's being fought by groups that it really, this is the other venues downtown this is like the the rave and it's the you know the the Milwaukee theater and people like that who are saying well wait a second if you if you put this other venue here 
it's going to be competition with us. And we're afraid that this new venue will siphon business off from us, that we won't be able to get as many concerts. And, and that means that maybe, maybe some of us will end up going under because we won't be able to compete. And my reaction is, first of all, I'm not sure that, that that's true. Typically, what would happen, I would argue, is that you, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, if I can use that cliche. You know, if you, if, I mean, I felt this way about, for example, what I do, talk radio. Uh, people have always said, well, you know, how do you feel about this competition or that competition or somebody starting a new talk show? I, I don't, it doesn't matter to me because I, I think the more good stuff there is, that, that's fine. It, it, it benefits us all. Maybe somebody else starts a show, it attracts them, and it attracts a new listener. Then they start listening to them, and then they say, hey, okay, I'm going to see what else is out there. And they find the Wagner Show, and they listen to that. I've always firmly believed that. I also think competition makes us all better. But the, the opponents are essentially saying, no, if you let FPC Live come in here, what they're going to do is they are going to essentially drive all these other venues out of business because they will not be able to compete, which is, of course, the argument that we've, we've heard a lot over the years. Hey, if you have a Walmart that comes into a community, that means that, okay, the, the Main Street businesses aren't going to be able to compete and some of them will close. And guy who was selling vacuums, for example, in Main Street might end up over at Walgreens working, well, not Walgreens, Walmart, working, you know, selling vacuums there. And, and my response has always been, but that's a market choice. If people decide that they want to patronize Okay, the the Walmart, instead of patronizing Joe's vacuums because the Walmart has a greater selection and they have better prices, that's the market at, at place. And, and yes, I concede that if you have a new venue, any sort of new venue that's in, it's going to be competing with other existing venues, and it might, you know, drive people, some people out of business. It's like restaurants. You know, if, if you've got new restaurants that are moving into a a particular area, let's say the Third Ward. You've got a couple new restaurants that move in. Well, it's entirely possible that if those new restaurants succeed, the effect of it might be that some existing restaurants lose business. But we don't say you can't open up a new restaurant or you can't open up a new bar. We say, okay, you've got to figure out how to compete. All right, let's open this up. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think, to, to me, the, the whole idea of, of saying, all right, we're not going to allow a new concert venue to open up because it might take business away from other concert venues, is to me just, just a, a red herring. Don't we want to say, let's have competition. Let's, let's let people compete, and if, if that means that some business ends up having to close, then they have to close. And again, my analogy would be to the restaurants. We, we don't say, no, Jeff, you can't open up a new restaurant because there's already, I don't know, three or four restaurants in this particular area, and you are probably going to draw a business away from those three or four existing restaurants, and one or two of them might go under. Well, we don't say that. We say, okay, you know, you, you start your new restaurant. If you're able to attract business and succeed, Go with God. That's great. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, from the perspective of consumers, isn't it in the interest of all of us to have, again, different venues? And if Live Nation thinks they can come in and they think that they can 
offer, uh, again, you know, bands or whatever that people are going to want to see and they're willing to pay the price for them? Should the government be telling them, no, you can't do that? Because that's what the opponents are saying. They're saying, okay, we want the government to essentially not allow a zoning change or things like that. I think this concert venue is an ideal location for, you know, where the Bradley Center is. It's perfect. It's positioned perfectly in relation to Fiserv. You've got all sorts of parking that is in the area. People are used to coming down there. I think it will definitely benefit the area. And I think other venues just then have to figure out how they are going to compete. And maybe they will. Maybe they won't. But isn't that what America is all about? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Chris. Chris, good afternoon. You're on WTMJ. Hello, Jeff. Hi. Uh, the issue isn't so much that it's gonna stifle competition, it's going to funnel the competition. The bands are all affiliated with Live Nation or Ticketmaster. Mm-hmm. So those bands will end up only going to the Pfizer, the venue near Pfizer, or the a Ticketmaster affiliated venue. So all all these bands are affiliated, so they're just going to get funneled um, mm-hmm. to those locations, and that will essentially stop band main bands going to the rave or um, App Store or anything like that. Okay, don't uh, I, I don't mean to be flip with what I'm about to say, but so. I mean, from, I mean, no, no sorry, I mean, from, I mean, so, so, from the perspective of if the bands decide that they want to play um, for whatever reason at location A instead of location B, so what? I, I mean, what, what, what is the interest in the government in requiring people to to have to play at locations B or C instead of A? I mean, isn't that the choice that the band makes when they sign up with the with uh, Live Nation in this case? It's the, all these fees also that are associated with these bands um, that it it creates monopolies in in essence. It, it well, doesn't actually. Okay, thank. I mean, I, I guess. I mean, look, that that's the argument. I, I guess that we were were hearing about gas stations all the and it's, I'm not I'm not unsympathetic I guess to the idea that hey if you if you have this venue and it's Live Nation and Live Nation has deals with all sorts of bands and they're going to funnel them to uh, again this location by the Bradley Center at, at where the Bradley Center used to be and that means some of these other venues are going to have a tougher time getting them I mean I don't mean to be unsympathetic but it is kind of so I, I mean that's that that's that's a situation with with the bands and that probably probably does mean that the other locations are going to have to work a little bit harder to find bands and groups that they're going to be in but but isn't but but is is it the government's role to say no now at some point in time if you want to say or, and this has always been the argument that hey it's been the argument for the minimum markup law that if you if we don't do something to have the government protect the the mom and pop gas station. What's going to happen is the big gasoline company is going to come in. They're going to drive everybody else out of business, and then they're going to jack up prices. Now it, that that has not happened over the last seventy years in the real world. It, it just it just hasn't. And my argument has always been okay if that if that is is what happens. 
and they start to jack up prices and things like that, well, then what's going to happen is people just, they're they're not going to pay the prices, they're not going to go, and it's going to create a market for an existing venue or some other venue, the new venue, to come in and and scoop up that, that business. I guess it's there's always this this theoretical danger that you might have have a monopoly in the real world it almost never plays out that way let's talk to trevor trevor you're on wtmj good afternoon kevin i'm sorry kevin hello hi kevin good afternoon hello. you're on wtmj oh, hey there. how are you doing good what do you think hey there um so from the perspective of someone who's an active participant in the the local music scene here in Milwaukee. Um, I do enjoy the idea of, you know, kind of a a nice new shiny place to play Mm -hmm. um, and bring in some, you know, some, some other acts that maybe don't come here because of, um, you know, they, they either play the rave every time they, they get here or, you know, they, there's not necessarily a, a step up, Right from that venue, um, but also uh, I think uh, if you know if it's scaring sort of our, our local venues a lot, um, I think it should provide some good motivation for them to continue to uh, do things that make their venue an attractive place to play. Yes, uh, I know. What, yes. what the guy previous was just talking about is. Yeah, the, those contracts are in place, and, and bands do get funneled to um, the venues that they're contracted with under Live Nation. Um, but I, I see a lot um, and, and hear talk kind of under the table of you know bands that do have Live Nation deals, but really don't actually like them because of how um, yeah. I guess corporatized it is where they, they end up taking, um, you know, a cur- uh, they take cuts of the merch that gets sold right, uh, at any given show. No, I, I've no, I've got. I mean, thanks, thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. I appreciate that. See, I guess that's that's my perspective. What you're talking about is the, the the competition aspect of it, and from from a band's perspective, if you know, you've got a deal in this case with Live Nation, and I I, I think. Somewhat of some of this is, I think, a little bit like like overrated. For example, as far as is the fear factor and how much they're going to dominate it. But look, I, I have no doubt that this is it will just like just like when you have the Walmart that, that moves into the community. There are some businesses that aren't going to be able to survive, and there's others going to be able to figure out ways that to, to get around this. Okay, we're we're going to find we're going to find the new upcoming bands, for example, that, that might not have these deals yet and we're going to bring them in or we're going to concentrate on more local musicians or whatever this might be. I guess I just have trouble with the whole notion of of competition and I've always believed that that competition is is a good thing. Now, if it gets out, if it does get to a monopoly standpoint, well, then then maybe you have to move in. But at this point in time, I'm not seeing this. And, you know, it is interesting because these groups, they're opposed to the Live Nation thing. But apparently, at least my understanding is that this new thing that they're talking about, another venue that they're talking about building up um, 
on on like not right down the street from where we are, pretty much like Michigan and Ninth Avenue, you know, where they want to put it as part of a soccer stadium, things like that. Well, they don't oppose that. It's because Live Nation is viewed as it's the Walmart of the world. It's the Costco of the music industry or, or whatever. And I, I guess I just look and say Walmart has been able to, I don't coexist with all sorts of other businesses. And I don't doubt that it's a challenge, you know, for some of these businesses to compete with Walmart, but they're able to do it, aren't they? So, Mike, last night I was at the baseball game. And so I I had, it was, I I have two, I share season tickets with my buddy Evan. And I have a very, very dear friend, Jenny, and she's she's a Cardinals fan. And so I got tickets for Jenny and my wife Fran went, but these these tickets weren't together. Mm-hmm. So like we were in our regular seats, and the, the other two seats were in what Jenny was describing as Cardinals country. They're like four rows behind the the dugout. So because we we just kind of switched around. So at the start of the game, I went over there with Jenny, and I'm sitting there. So I'm starting to get all these texts from people saying, number one, you're on TV. So apparently we were in like the TV thing, and number two. Who's that woman that you're with? Because <laughs> it doesn't look like your wife, <laughs> you know. And it's it's like, yeah, okay, this is well. I, my my wife's in another section there, and so after about four innings, because candidly, there were I got to tell you this, it was kind of disappointing. There were probably as many Cardinal fans at American Family Field last night as there were Brewers fans. At at least it seemed like we were there yeah. as well, and there was a oh, lot of red. Yeah, there was, a, and and of course, I'm sitting behind the third base. I'm, for the first four innings, I'm behind the third base dugout, and you know, every time Albert Pujols comes up, everybody stands up and they're cheering. And the Brewers laid an egg last night, so that was kind of tough. So after about four innings, I said to my friend Jenny, I said, "Okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go get Fran. I'll send her over here." And they they sat for another couple innings, then they came back, and we all sat together for the thing. But it was. Uh, it was just another disappointing game for the Brewers, but I, I hats off to the Cardinal fans. They travel incredibly well. Yeah, and you know they're they're pacing for you know they all wanted to catch history. I think before Pujols hit number seven hundred over the weekend, that's why we got tickets because I was like, I don't want to miss an opportunity if it's ever going to happen. I want to get my tickets early and, and make sure I don't miss it. But I will say, Jeff, I think you're outnumbered on this show right now by Cardinals fans, judging by your producer's shirt he's wearing. Yeah, that's okay. But I, I you know, you, there's no accounting for taste. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> and I, 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 I understand that. And but it was it was kind of this interesting thing. So I did want to make this comment that if anybody was watching the ball game yesterday and. Seemed, I, I mean, of course, I'm wearing my Brewers gear and stuff and my WTMJ little jacket on top of that. So I, I felt like I was kind of a, a really small sea of blue in the, this whole army of red. But if people were saying, that looks like Jeff Wagner. And that doesn't seem like the that woman he was sitting next to and talking to doesn't seem like his wife. Well, she wasn't, but it, it, it was all on the up and up, I swear. Yeah, Fran knows. Fran knows. She's aware. Fran knows. We all came in the same car. We all left in the same car, and we all ended up at our respective homes. No question about it. When we come back, come on, Mom, let me sleep 10 minutes more. I will explain. We will discuss. Okay, let me see a show of hands. Who would like to be able to sleep in later in the morning? Can I see a show of hands? Hmm. Okay, pretty much everybody's hand is going up. Who thinks that they would function better if they got a little bit more sleep? Show of hands? Hmm. Almost everybody is is raising their hand. Who likes to get up early in the morning? Anybody? Hmm, no hands going up. Oh, it's, it's not a surprise. You know, we, we, we like to sleep in. 
we like to, you know, that not have that alarm that has to go off and you have to get up and go do your things. But, you know, the truth of the matter is this, this is real life. And, and real life is that you, you have a job maybe that you have to get to. And, you know, if you've got to be there by 830 and you've got a 30-minute commute and you want to have breakfast and you want to, you know, get up and you want to have a shower and get dressed and all, okay, that means you, you might have to get up at 630 in the morning. No, nobody likes getting up at 630 in the morning, but it's the nature of your business. I mean, talk to talk to the folks that do our morning show. Ran into my friend Gene Miller a couple times over the last couple weeks, and he, he looks great. And I think it's partly because he doesn't have to get up at two o'clock in the morning anymore. But it, it's just kind of the reality. Well, what got me started on this is there was a story in the Wall Street Journal the other day who says that that makes the point that particularly for teenagers, teenagers should get enough sleep. And if they don't get enough sleep, which is defined as eight hours a night, if they don't get enough sleep, they could be um, exposed to mental health issues, et cetera, et cetera. This idea that, well, you know, it needs, needs to have some sleep. Well, I, I, don't, I, I don't know how, how much there's really like significant mental health issues that, that come with not getting sleep, but you're tired. I, I get it. it. It's, you know, you need sleep to recharge your batteries and things like that. So, so the point of this article is that, okay, if we accept the premise that the kids should get more sleep, the question becomes, okay, how do you do this? And the point of the article is, well, here's what we need to do. We need to start high school later. We, we shouldn't increase, we shouldn't have kids having to be at high school at 7.30 in the morning. We shouldn't have kids having to be at high school at 8 o'clock in the morning. We shouldn't start high school till at least 8.30 and, and maybe later. And then, you know, it goes on to make the point of, you know, historically high schools have started a little bit earlier and earlier. And then the percentage of U.S. high school students who don't get enough sleep grew from 70, 69% to 78% as of 2019. So 8 out of 10 high school kids don't get enough sleep, and the answer is, well, let's push back the high school start time. Okay, our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Might I offer another solution to this? And might that solution be, if you're not getting enough sleep, maybe mom and dad need to step in and say, okay, you can't stay up on your computer, you can't stay up on your phone, you can't be on Twitter, you can't be on Facebook at 1 o'clock in the morning. And, and yes, you have to have a, heaven forbid, you got to have a bedtime. And, you know, I don't know if you need eight hours of sleep or not, but if you've got to be at school at, let's say, eight by 8 o'clock in the morning, and that means you got to get up by 6.45, well, maybe that means you need to go to bed by 10 or 10.30 at night. Well, Mom, I can't have to do that. I've, I've got to do all this stuff, and I want to watch TV, and I've got to watch all my TikTok videos. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I am not anti-sleep. But this idea that you can't start high school classes early because that's the reason kids aren't getting enough sleep, I'm sorry, I I don't buy it. That's a simple thing. You just go to bed earlier. And my belief is that if, for example, you said we're not going to start high school classes till 8.30 in the morning— all that, that wouldn't change anything. The, the kids would still continue to stay up just as late as they stay up and maybe even continue to stay up longer than that. The trick is 
not the start time. The start, the trick is having mom and dad who say, okay, it's time to put down the computer and it's time to go to bed. The other thing is that if you move up high school start time, if you move them back too long, what are you going to do with all the after-school activities that you have? I mean, how seriously, you know, if you if the school day doesn't end till 4 o'clock or, or 3.30 or whatever, how are you going to have room for all the practices and things like that? Then you're not going to have kids getting home till 6, 6.30 at night. And, and how do you have dinners and things like that? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, should we be collectively, because... High school kids aren't getting enough sleep, and I accept that as a premise. The numbers say 80% aren't getting a full eight hours. Is the answer to push back school starting times, or maybe is the answer a little more simple? 855-616-1620, we discuss. 855-616-1620. Okay, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal that talks about how 80% of high school students aren't getting eight hours of sleep a night. I And I, I'm not sure I've ever been in a position where I regularly got eight hours of sleep a night, but it says, okay, that, that's the idea. And then it says this lack of sleep might be increasing like mental health-related problems and things like that. So the solution is let's start high school, let's start high school later. And I guess my simple answer is if you start high school later, let's say, okay, first classes aren't till 8.30. Well, all right, that pushes everything in the day back. So you're not getting home from after school activities till 6 or 6.30. Then you got homework and then you're off to the races there. Isn't the, isn't the real answer something a lot simpler, which is mom and dad, if your kids aren't getting enough sleep, well, maybe you need to set a, a bedtime and maybe you need to say, okay, you, you got to be in bed by 10.30 on, on school nights and you got to put down the computer. My point is, if you push back starting times for like first period in high school, all you're going to do is encourage the kids to stay up later. Let's start with Katie. Katie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I am well, thank you. What do you think about all this? I, I think getting up in the morning and disciplining yourself is a life skill. And it's one of the many life skills that parents are afraid or not engaged enough with their kids to teach. Um, I work in a school. It's a K-8 school. And these kids have access to iPhones, iPads, TV, computers all night long. And I have a 16-year-old son, no, 17-year-old son who disciplines himself to go to bed at 8.30 every night on a school night. Because it, it, he realized it affected him. It affected his health, his energy, and his grades shot up. It, it is a life skill. It's not about schools changing the time. You can start, jobs don't do that. I mean, jobs don't say, oh, you want to stay up late so you can uh, sleep until 10 and we'll just start your shift at 10. It doesn't work that way. You have to teach your children that is part of life. That is a discipline you need to learn. And it, I truly do believe it does affect a child's health, a child's attitude, a child's academics, mm-hmm. their relationships, just like it does adults. So stop blaming the schools, and they need to bow to this and start teaching our kids a skill they're going to need for the rest of their lives. Right, which is how to cope. No, thanks to call, which is, which is how to, to function. And, I, I mean, you know, a couple of our texters are also challenging the whole notion of who gets eight hours sleep. And, and I guess that that's a whole other conversation. But I, I'm trying to think, and I'm not talking about, okay, it's that, that time that you've been out really, really late and you're just 
you know, exhausted and you crash. But just, you know, on, on regular nights, I mean, even going back to when I was in high school, I don't think I, I ever got eight hours of sleep. Now, maybe that explains a whole lot, but if that's the case, that you need that, and if your parents are starting to see that, I think it's it's real simple. You you just say, okay, you got to go to bed earlier. Text Jeff. The answer is real simple. Parents need to assert control and tell Johnny and Susie, you will put the computer down, you will put the phone down, you will go to bed by 1030, no argument. That would take care of the problem. Let's talk to Mary. Mary, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, I am actually in favor of putting a start time later, and it stems from uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, up in Edina, Minnesota. They experimented with this and pushed the start time back to not necessarily because kids weren't getting enough hours of sleep, but because of the time of day of sleep with circadian rhythms in Mm -hmm. uh, adolescence. And they noted that test scores and academic scores shot up. When you and say they moved in, when you say push it back, what would you think about? What when, what are, what are we talking about? Eight thirty nine. I'm, I'm, what would you say would 930. be nine thirty? Nine thirty. So they so they they flipped the school schedules. Typically, it was the high school that started first, and then the middle school, and then the primary schools started later, and they followed. I guess they could say they followed the science and they flipped that so that the grade school children were starting early and the high school was starting late and the middle school stayed about the same. And they also, within the community, adjusted the work permit time so that high school students could still work jobs and get enough hours available uh, and they were allowed to work a little bit later. It wasn't that they weren't getting enough sleep. So that discipline part, I think, is still important, that when it's bedtime, it's bedtime. But also the time of day needs to be considered because they're I'm, developing. How do you... I'm just trying to think how that works out in, in a real world. So, okay, you start... First of all, if you're going to have, like, the grade school kids start, like, it's safe... Because I assume some of that's probably due to school busing and things like that. You have the grade school right. kids start at like 7.30 in the morning, so you've got, like, young kids out at bus stops at, at 6.45 or so. I, I, I guess I, I'm curious as to how parents would react to that. But but also, if you don't start high school till 9.30, how how do you handle the, the extracurriculars? If the day doesn't end till 4 o'clock, the school hour day doesn't end till 4, you're, you're talking about kids who aren't getting home till 7 o'clock at night or so, I would seem to me. Correct. And I don't know the details of yeah. it as I was in college during this time, but I remember it. And I was very fascinated by it. And they've expanded it to other communities because of the success. So I think it's worth considering and looking at case studies of other communities who have done this and what the results have been yeah. um, and what it took because it's a domino effect. Right. It no, does th- affect a lot of different things. Yeah, no, th- thanks for call. And I guess I'm, I, I mean, those are the, I, I mean, I, Okay, I, I think you you can make an argument for all of us that you know we you know there's some people that are morning people, there are other people that you know hey I, I twelve noon twelve noon works really well for me. I, I love my particular schedule and things like that. But at the same time, when I was you know practicing law, if you know the judge said you have to be there at eight thirty, well you have to be there at eight thirty, and you have to learn how to kind of cope with that sort of of stuff. I, I guess when when I 
when I hear 930, I will tell you honestly, I mean, my reaction is, how, how does that possibly work if, you know, with the after-school activities, you don't get home till 630 or 7 o'clock at night, and then you've got to eat, then you've got to do homework, and you have to have a little bit of downtime. How does that work? And if the flip side is because of school busing, you've got, you know, kids that are 7, 8, 9 years old, they're the ones that are out at the school bus in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or Racine, Wisconsin, or wherever, at 6.45 in the morning in January, how are the parents going to feel about that? Ah, it, it's it's an interesting concept, and I appreciate the whole thing about circadian rhythms, but you know, sometimes we just got to power through that stuff, don't we? I'm actually being overwhelmed with very, very interesting texts on this issue. Here's one. Jeff, starting later wouldn't change anything. Currently, our high school has swim, weightlifting, club meetings, and jazz bands scheduled as early as 6 a.m. Active, engaged high schoolers would continue to be involved in academically challenging classes, sports, clubs, jobs, and it would not significantly change the amount of sleep they get. I tell my three high schoolers that life is all about choices and figuring out how to manage all of your responsibilities. Learn the life lesson now to make them successful adults. Jeff, I think pushing back the start time of high school would only add more issues. Kids who work, what about after school sports, being dark outside earlier? Um, Be a parent. Phones and TVs go off and go to bed. Well, I mean, I think there is an element of, of that. Jeff, we had to be in bed by 10 when we were in high school. I think for me it was 11. Now, one of the things I, I went, I lived three blocks away from the high school that I went to. So I, I admit that I, I didn't have that school bus issue. I mean, I, I walked to school every day. So uphill in the snow each way. No, no. But I mean, I, it, was, it was three blocks. So I, it was. I could roll out of bed and, you know, throw on some clothes, took a shower the night before, and so you could get to school in just a matter of minutes. It wasn't a deal where I had to, like, wait out for a school bus and things like that. So I got pretty good at just showing up at pretty much the last minute. But it's still, it's one of those deals where I think you just have to get into a situation where if the kids aren't getting enough sleep, they just, mom and dad, that's where you have to step in. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up in the 2 o'clock hour of the program. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. So glad to have you with us. I I mentioned this yesterday. Uh, There's, I I, I never, when I was practicing law, I never got bitten by the judge bug, never never wanted to be a, a judge myself and don't know that I could have ever gotten elected to be a judge with my attitudes on crime and stuff around here. My philosophy would be to lock them up and things like that. And that would, of course, ruffled some feathers with the powers that be. But there's, there is, if you ever thought you wanted to be a judge, all I can say is put yourself in the position of Waukesha County Circuit Judge Jennifer Doro. And we talked a little bit about this yesterday, but she's in a situation where she is scheduled to provide, preside over the trial of Daryl Brooks Jr. Daryl Brooks Jr. is, of course, the guy who is 
allegedly, and we'll use that word, just whenever I describe this event, just assume that I'm saying the word alleged, because he, in this country, you are innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But he's the guy who allegedly was the one who blew through the barricades, drove through the Waukesha Christmas Parade, killed six people, and injured dozens and dozens and dozens of more, more people. Um, he is scheduled to go on trial. I believe the trial is supposed to start next week. The trial is scheduled for like three or four weeks. The, the preparations for this have been intense. What they ended up doing is they ended up sending out a jury questionnaires because it's going to be difficult to find jurors who can participate in this case. Now, keep in mind the standard for a juror to participate in a case is not whether or not the person has ever heard about the case because, I mean, frankly, everybody's heard about, you know, what happened during the Waukesha Christmas Parade. The question is whether or not people, even based on what they know about the case, can decide the case fairly and impartially based on the evidence that is presented at trial. But in order to facilitate this, what they've been doing is they sent out a whole series of questionnaires several months ago to potential jurors because they wanted to start the process of weeding out jurors who clearly, you know, would not be chosen, who, who for whatever reasons, you know, can't just keep an open mind about the evidence or something like that. So why bring them in? So they, they, this has been a process that has been going on for several months. Well, uh, Brooks had a court-appointed lawyer who, by the way, um, I, I don't know him myself, but I, I've heard from several other attorneys in town, and they, they say very, very good lawyer who was doing a very, very good job of representing him. And, and let's face it, representing Daryl Brooks Jr. is a is a challenge it, under all the facts and evidence that we know in this particular case. It is a challenge. He is also an extremely difficult client in that he's acted up in court on multiple occasions. You'll remember there was an occasion for one of the preliminary hearings where he refused to leave his jail cell, Um, another hearing where he was sleeping in the courtroom, another hearing where there were multiple outbursts and he was arguing with the judge and things like that. And this presents a difficult balancing for a, a judge, because on the one hand, you have to control your courtroom, and you cannot literally allow the inmates to rule the asylum. I mean, that, that that's it. You've got to control the courtroom. But at the same time, you know, you have somebody who is on trial, and if they are convicted, they will spend the rest of their life in prison. And so you, you want to make sure that they have a fair trial and their rights are, are represented. So I, I think actually the judge has been doing a very good job. I think the prosecutor has been doing a good job. I think the defense attorney has been doing a good job. Well, Daryl Brooks decided sometime in the last week or so that he wants to discharge his court-appointed attorney literally on the eve of trial, and he wants to represent himself. Now, this, this is fraught with peril on so many different levels. First of all, there is the old cliche that, you know, a person who represents themselves has a fool for their client, and, and that's absolutely true. Um, in, in a high-stakes legal endeavor— there's no way at all that somebody with no legal training at all should be representing themselves. Now, at the same time, let's understand what's going on in the Daryl Brooks case. This is what we used to call a slow guilty plea. I mean, there's, there's no question he, he's guilty as you know what. And and whether he's he could have the best lawyer in the world, and I, I think the outcome is going to be preordained because he did what he is accused of doing, allegedly. But so— 
by Brooks saying he wants to represent himself, you have a situation where you have somebody who has already demonstrated that they are not going to be bound by the normal rules of the court, that they feel it entitled to act out in any way, shape, or form. If you allow Brooks to represent himself, that means that you're going to allow have to allow him to cross-examine all the witnesses and, and things like that, and you run the risk of turning this trial into a complete and total circus, much more so than it, than it already is, is going to be. And then the issue happens, well, what happens if he acts up? What happens if he refuses to follow the instructions of the court, which is, I think, quite likely? You know, how do you handle that? Do you, do you remove him from the courtroom? Do you try him in absentia? How, how do you do these things, and how do you do it if he's his own lawyer? The flip side of that, though, is people have a right to represent themselves. If you can determine, and if the judge determines that the person is in fact competent to make that decision and understands all the ramifications of the system, of that decision. Now, it seems to me that what's going on here is Daryl Brooks is efforting to, to game the system. And if he represents himself, the trial becomes a, a circus. And you might say, okay, well, even if it becomes a circus, does that, you know, he's, he's got no chance of, you know, getting acquitted. And so what's going to happen is he'll be convicted and then it'll be a long time to get through the trial. But once you get through it, you're all set. Well, maybe, maybe not. The problem, of course, is that after he gets convicted, if he represents himself, there will inevitably be motions that will be filed by lawyers that he uses on appeal, because he'll take them on appeal, who will then argue, hey, this was he was denied a fair trial because he just didn't understand or appreciate all these different things. And so it becomes a mess for the prosecutors who want to present their case. It becomes a mess for the judge who wants to run an orderly courtroom. And it, again, turns these proceedings into more of a circus than it already is. My guess is the judge will probably allow him to represent himself, but maybe order the uh, counsel to kind of stay on in an advisory sort of fashion in an effort to maybe explain complicated legal concepts that Brooks might not understand. But this is, uh, it's shaping up to be a mess. They, they thought the trial was going to last, I think, like three weeks because of the number of witnesses, etc. If If he represents himself, my guess is the trial will go on a lot longer than that, and you can count on outburst after outburst and problem after problem. Bottom line of this is Daryl Brooks is not going to go gently into the state prison system, and my guess is it's going to be just a huge series of issues for the prosecutors and for you know the judge. People would always say to me, well, you know, don't you— how do you feel about going up against good defense attorneys? Don't you like it when the defense attorneys aren't that good? My response would be no, because I, I just I, I want to I want a defendant to have a vigorous defense. I also don't want to have to worry about issues on appeal. I mean, once you get a conviction, you want to make sure that that conviction is going to stick, because the last thing you want to do is have to retry somebody a year and a half later because of problems. So in any event, that's what's going on now. The judge will rule this afternoon, and my guess is she will allow him to represent him himself, uh, it's a bad decision, and it turns what is already—where I, I really feel bad about with this is you, you think about the victims, the, the surviving victims, the people that were injured, and the families of the people who died. And you, you turn this into even more of a circus, and you just increase the pain of on those people, and that's very, very unfortunate. Okay, let's take a quick break. <laughs> 
One of our texters says, how can Daryl Brooks represent himself when he doesn't even understand the charges or so he claims? Well, that's the problem. And that's what the judge has to determine is that does he understand the charges against him? Does he understand the consequences of representing himself? And does he appreciate all the ups and downs? And and I, I don't see how he can, but I think part of what's going on here is, and you have defendants who do this from time to time, he, he's clearly... It's a stunt that he is pulling because he understands that you know he's going to get convicted. So it's like, let's cause as much trouble as we possibly can. Jeff, the guy is looking to create an environment for himself that might result in a mistrial or an acquittal on a technicality. Well, I doubt it's going to result in an acquittal on a technicality, but I guess that's that's the— you know, that is the effect of, you know, you're trying to do this and you delay the inevitable and you try to goad the judge into doing something that creates an, an a revert, what we call reversible error. And, and it could be a problem. Jeff, isn't it odd how the least productive in society, Daryl Brooks, for example, consume the most of our civil resources? I'm so tired of it. Um, yeah, I think that there's there, there is there is sort of an element like that. It's it's well we also we talk about this with crime it's one of the reasons why i'm i'm one of these like lock them up guys because what what happens is you have the vast majority of crime is committed by a really very small number of people most people are law abiding citizens who just uh, observe the rules maybe they kind of bend and try to one here or there but but they're not out stealing cars or whatever there's a very small percentage of people that do that and for those people, I think what we need to do is protect the rest of us from them. And that's why it's so frustrating to me when you see these cases where you have somebody who's committed crime after crime after crime after crime, and they've never really been held accountable. And I know I've said this before, but I, I guarantee you, when I was a prosecutor and you know we were dealing with federal crimes, and by the time you got over to federal court, you were in a lot of trouble, but I would look at these pre-sentence reports and you would see, in many cases, the defendant's had it started out with minor stuff and then it graduated to more significant stuff and all along the way there really weren't a lot of consequences and then ultimately they did something so bad that they were going to prison for 20 years without parole but but i've always wondered if you stepped in earlier held them accountable held them a little bit responsible might that have changed things all right to that end this is one of my sort of one of my semi-favorite stories the Journal Sentinel reports, here's the headline, Staffing crisis at Lincoln Hills means youth confined to cells for long stretches, loss of in-person classes. Okay, so Lincoln Hills is the the facility where you, you get sent as a juvenile, as an offender, for it, – it's really the worst of the worst. That That's what it is. You don't go just right to Lincoln Hills because, I, I don't know, you soaped up some windows. I mean, this is – this is the juvenile offenders that are the worst of of the worst. And there's an effort afoot to close Lincoln Hills and to bring the detention facilities like closer here. When I don't I don't oppose any of that, but the truth is you gotta work to get yourself thrown into Lincoln Hills. So the story talks about how they, they don't have as many youth counselors as they're supposed to have. There's a 40% vacancy rate for youth counselors who work directly for with the inmates. And um, let's see, only three of 12 social worker positions were filled so that they don't have enough of that. And they've got about a quarter of the, the teachers, five teaching positions 
at any at the quarter are, are vacant. So they're they're having trouble getting enough people that are willing to work in this facility. All right, that, that's all well and good, and I don't deny this, but here, here's what I love about the story. This is what they write. The staffing shortages have resulted in young people being confined for longer periods in their cells with little to do, not because they had misbehaved, but because the prison did not have enough staff to adequately supervise them. Young people interviewed during the monitor's most recent visit at the end of July complained about having to do classwork in their cells or on their units, and a unit being, you know, where there's a series of beds, and so they, they share the area. So they complained about having to do classmate in the classwork in their cells or on their units where they did not always have the help from a teacher. They felt they were not learning as much when they had in-person teaching in the facility's classrooms. Okay, this is one of my give-me-strength moments, because here you have all these people that— couldn't have given a rat's rump about school when they were out committing their, their crimes and now have the audacity to complain that, well, well, gee, you know, we don't have enough time with the teachers right now. Because the truth of the matter is, if they cared about their education, if they had been in school in the first place, they, they, they wouldn't have been in the lockup where they are. But now that they're in the lockup, it's, well, we, we don't have all these different amenities. Now, obviously, you want to give them as much teacher, many teachers as they can possibly get, and you want to have the social workers that are there. But I guess my response is, is cry me a river. If you're worried that you're not going to get enough personal attention and instruction from your teacher, well, at Lincoln Hills, maybe the simple answer is don't commit crimes that get yourself sent to Lincoln Hills, but that's just me. Okay, we've got a hurricane hitting Florida. Looking for some good news here, uh, and credit where credit is due. Today, for the first time in a long time, Dow Jones is up, and it's up big. Let's see. Right now, Dow Jones Industrial is up 573 points, still below 30,000, but it's up um, almost 2%, so proving that stuff that goes down can ultimately go up. The NASDAQ composite, that's up 226, which is a 2.13% increase. So the bottom line is, at least today, and I don't know what's causing it, but the stock market is is rebounding a little bit. Now, again, when you go and get your 401k or your IRA statements at the end of the month, my advice is sit down with an adult beverage or calming music or your cat or your dog or whatever it is that relaxes you because <clears throat> once you look at those quarterly numbers, it's going to be really, really ugly. But but at least for today, Dow Jones Industrials are up. So, Melissa, I was talking about this earlier. When um, when you own a place, condo that's in the middle of where this is, it's sort of interesting. So we there's I have a neighbor who's in our neighborhood who's mm-hmm. been like sending out emails and, and pictures of all that's going on and stuff. And so you're kind of watching this as oh, from afar. The, the, the street's flooded, and well, okay, that it's starting to inch up. But so far, we think the water might be receding a little bit, and it doesn't appear like it's you know in people's garages as of yet. But you're kind of watching this, going, my gosh, there's a lot of water. You know, and it's interesting because like you, there's nothing you can do about it. No, there's nothing you can do. You just got to ride the storm a- out. Absolutely. Now, one of the things, um, at least where I am, which is between Naples and Fort Myers, is mm-hmm. there's a um, you know, high tide, I think, is I think is hitting sometime right now. So theoretically, after high tide, 
the, the water recedes a little bit, which mm-hmm. would be the, the good news. But that's just in, in theory. But, it's interesting. Yeah, I just talked to uh, my girlfriend's mom lives in Port Charlotte. Right. She's up in Jacksonville trying to get out of the state right now. But her husband stayed in Port Charlotte. She said one of the places that they stayed at, she said um, their friends, there's like a, a bay area behind their home. And, and the hurricanes already sucked all the water out of that area. It's I don't know if it's not kind of called a bay, but it's like a little right. you know, inlet or whatever. So uh, that's going to be interesting to see. Hopefully the flooding won't be too bad, but it looks like it, it will. Yeah, well, there's just, I mean, again, there's just, there's, nothing you can really, there's absolutely nothing mm-hmm. you can do about it and all. And, and, you know, one of the big concerns too is like with the wind and that's, that's where they're dealing with like further north from where I am, where you get the, the wind because then sure. wind tears off the roofs and stuff Oof. like that. It's just not a good situation in general. And, um, you know, you're talking about just a lot of people that, cause I mean, mm. everybody knows that area. I mean, anybody that goes to Florida has probably at one point in time or another, either flown into Tampa or flown into Fort Myers or something like that. So yeah. it's, uh, getting definitely getting everybody's attention. But yeah, we, again, one of my neighbors is there and they're sending out like pictures of, oh, water, water's uh, coming up the entrance to the neighborhood. Oh, water's in the street of the neighborhood. Oh, it's starting to, but it's coming up people's steps, but you know, what can you do? Hang tight. Hang, mm-hmm. hang tight mm-hmm. and just figure it all out. When we come back, all right, so you want to buy a house? You want to sell a house? We'll discuss. So very glad to have you with us. All right, it, it always used to be that the the quote-unquote American dream, at least the American dream for a lot of people, was the fact that, all right, you, as, as you get older, you get married, you buy a house, you raise kids, maybe you, as you, you know, as you, um, as your family starts to grow, you buy a bigger house, then maybe as you get set in your job or whatever, you buy an even bigger house. That was always the, the progression that w- was there. And the idea that, you know, people want to, again, you know, people want to own the homes where they, they live. Well, it's been very, very difficult over the last couple of years to pursue that, in part because, first of all, up until at least relatively recently, it was an incredible seller's market for property. Interest rates to buy houses were very, very low. You could get a 30-year fixed mortgage for, what, less, less than, you know, less than 3%. So it was a very, very good deal there. But because of that, so because money was relatively cheap, and because for whatever reason there was a huge demand on homes, what you would see is you would see somebody would put their house on the market, and then what would happen is you'd have uh, many times bidding wars. You know, somebody would price the house. I'll put the house on the market for three hundred thousand dollars, just to pull a number out of the air. And what would happen is you'd have a number of people who would say, "Hey, I'll give you three hundred five thousand. No, I'll give you three ten. And there would just be a bidding war that would break out. And you know, so your house that you put on the market for three hundred grand, you'd sell for three forty. And a lot of I know potential buyers because when we talked about this phenomenon when it was happening got incredibly frustrated because they'd say, hey, you know, we've we've tried to buy houses. We've made these various offers, but, you know, we, we keep getting outbid because, you know, we, we quickly find ourselves out of our budget. We say, hey, there's a house for 300000 We love it. We'll pay 300000 But next thing you know, you're in this bidding war and it's three forty or whatever. And so you have to, to back off. That has been the case for the longest time. It is starting to switch because, as we all know, with inflation, interest rates have gone up. So the, the quote-unquote cheap money to be able to go out and to buy a house, that those, those days are over. At least they're over for the, the time being. 
And so what, what's happening also is you have a lot of people who were putting their houses on the market at, at, at the best time to sell. Now, of course, the problem is if you sell your house, you have to live somewhere. So you know, are you, then you get yourself in a situation where, hey, this is great. I sold my house for three hundred forty grand, and I wanted you know three hundred thousand for it. But you want to buy a bigger house, and your market, your budget is four hundred grand. You find yourself paying four fifty. So it's always been tough. So, but it has been a seller's market for the longest time. Now things are starting to change. Big story in the Wall Street Journal talking about interest rates going up, and more and more potential home sellers who thought, hey, I could, I'm going to hold on, I'm going to hold on, I'm not going to put my house on the market because I'll be able to get more. If I wait six months, if it's worth 300 grand now, it'll be worth 350 in six months. Well, now that, that's not happening as much because the, the pool of buyers is shrinking because, again, interest rates are going up. So there's still th- this problem where th- there's not enough houses on the market to satisfy the buyers, at least at the prices that the buyers want or they can afford. And it's causing a lot of people to just reassess this whole idea of the American dream and home ownership. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. All right. Have you been in the market for a home, either to buy or to sell? And how difficult has that process been? Because I'm hearing all sorts of horror stories from people who are just wrestling with this. It's like, well, I'd like to sell, but I waited because I wasn't sure what I was going to be able to buy. Now I'd like to sell, but there's not enough buyers that are out there because of the high interest rates. Uh, I'm kind of stuck in the home that I'm in. What's going on with you? Have you been looking to get into the market recently? And how has that been? How has the economic changes been impacting you? 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, Jeff Hank Williams sang a long time ago: "The interest rate is up, the stock market's down, and you only get a shot if you go to town." Wow, was he right? I don't know about that. I mean, but here, here is the problem: if people are wondering, gee, why, why, why aren't there more houses? Because there, there's, I don't know that I can ever remember such a disconnect between. The people who perhaps wanted to buy homes and their inability to do that. And I think part of the thing right now is that I think a lot of people are more and more reluctant to put their houses on on the market, in part because if you've got if you've got a low interest rate, let's say, you know, you, you bought a starter house and you know you put down your down payment and you got in on that starter house and you've got an interest rate of two and a half percent or three percent for a thirty year mortgage or whatever. Okay, so if you sell your home to buy a bigger one, and, and yes, even assuming that you can get your property values gone up and that you can get more than you paid for it and you can get a fair return, you're still going to have to live somewhere, right? I mean, that's just kind of the nature of this. 
So the idea is, okay, I, I want to sell my house. I, I bought the house for two hundred fifty grand. I can sell it for three hundred. Hey, that's great. I've made fifty thousand dollars, but I got to live somewhere. And you want to buy the the bigger house, the nicer house, whatever it is. Well, the problem is, you you sit down and you find that I don't have enough cash to pay for the whole thing. So you're going to have to borrow money to buy that 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 house. Okay, I'm going to buy a house that costs four hundred thousand. But what you find is. That all right? If I buy that house at four hundred thousand, I'm not going to be able to refi- I'm not going to be able to finance it at at three percent. I'm going to have to pay six percent or six and a half percent or whatever to get that home. And the result of all this is that you end up in a situation where I think a lot of people are saying, "I, I just can't do it. I I want to move. I'd love to sell the place." But economically, I'm just not in a position to do it. And that's one of the downsides, again, to this, these spiraling interest rates. You know, we talk a lot about the interest rates and, and how they affect inflation and, and all those different things. And that's true. But one of the things that's happening is I think it's stopping people who otherwise would be ready to move from from doing it because even if they're willing to pay the higher prices, okay, maybe it's a house I could have bought for four hundred grand. Two years ago, now I'm going to have to pay 450. Even if they were in a position where they were willing to do that, what they're finding is, well, the, the cost of borrowing that money is going to be so very prohibitive, and that's one of the reasons why. I mean, I think home buyers and the opportunity is just so very, very scarce, which is, of course, one of the frustrations. Okay, we're going to turn it over to John McCure a little bit earlier than we normally do, because once again, we are in our our new studios down here at the Avenue, and we're all just kind of working with how the logistics of switching off and things do. But before that, um, it's just... You know, another one of these situations, and I'm sure they'll be talking about it on the news, where it's it it's not just the fact that we have crime around here. It's in many respects, it's the randomness of the crime. It's not just the high amount of crime, but it's the randomness that I think that gets a, a lot of people's attention. And the scary fact that you just don't know, you just don't know what's going to happen. You decide I'm going to go to the grocery store. All right, nothing unusual about that. I'm going to go to the grocery store that I've been going to for, you know, the last X number of years, and you don't think anything's going to happen. And then you get stories like this. Here's the story. Greenfield police are investigating a shooting that happened outside the Meyer store near 60th and Layton Avenue um, today. Um, A man suffered a gunshot wound and a woman was taken into custody. According to police, officers responded to the scene around 1030 a.m. after receiving multiple 911 calls of a shooting at the Meyer store. Upon arrival, officers located a man with a gunshot wound to his chest. A woman was taken into custody. Initial investigation revealed the shooting occurred outside of the store. That is a good thing. Police say two men engaged in an altercation, which one led to one man physically attacking the other. As the fight continued, a woman who was accompanying one of the men shot the other involved party with a handgun. Both men involved in the incident were taken to the hospital for treatment. The police say this was an isolated instance. Well, yes and no. This is, I think it's it's one of the things that those of us who, who look at crime and look at crime numbers continue to, to grapple with. And it's it, part of it is the availability of guns. 
understood that. But part of it, and the bigger part of it, is the willing of people, willingness of people who have guns to use those guns. Now, so this sounds like a fight that breaks out in a parking lot of this this grocery store. Okay, no no big deal. Fights break out outside of businesses all the time. They always have done that. But it always used to be you, you get into a fight with somebody in a parking lot or whatever, and you duke it out, and somebody wins and somebody loses, and maybe somebody ends up in, in the hospital because, I don't know, they've got a black eye or they've got a you know, some broken teeth or or whatever. That's the way that it always used to be. But nowadays, that's not how it happens. Nowadays, everybody not only has guns, but everybody is willing to use the firearms. So this is the deal where you got these two guys that are in what sounds like a fist fight, one pushing the other. You've got this lady who's got a handgun. She pulls it out and she shoots the other guy. So instead of a situation where somebody needs some stitches or whatever, you have a situation where somebody's been shot in the chest and they are in the hospital. Now, I don't have an answer to this. And I'm also somebody who is a big believer in the Second Amendment and things like that. But but the truth of the matter is, we have a lot of people out there that have sort of the impulse control of fruit flies is the best way I would describe it. So they end up getting into these different fights outside of stores or whatever. You get into these altercations, and it always used to either resolve itself by yelling at each other or taking a couple punches at each other. But now it results in somebody in the hospital or maybe in the morgue. And unless and until we can get control on this desire to sort of like turn every altercation into the shootout at the OK Corral, we are going to continue to see these numbers go up and up and up. And you wonder, is it safe anywhere? And I don't have an answer to that. 